Well, Nora was a perfect example of our message today, the fear of failure. Um, Every parent always fears that their baby will either poop their diapers or cry during the dedication. (laughs) And uh, certainly, Nora was uh, just like the rest of us. God is so faithful. I just want to ask us to uh, bless our time in the Word. Would you bow with me? Lord, my heart is always full when we dedicate one of these little ones to you. Nora is so perfect and she is so beautiful. And we look at her and we pray over her and we wonder what her life will bring. Lord, you have promised us every time we see a baby born that that's just a a promise that you haven't given up on the world. And we're so thankful for this beautiful child. Uh, Bless Anthony and Rachel as they raise her in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Now, Father, it's our privilege to open the Word of God to our people. My prayer is that not only would we open this Word, but that their hearts, their souls, their minds, their hands, their ears would be open to your Spirit. I pray that the Spirit of God would move among us through this Word and that we would leave this place having no fear of failure ever again. That's my prayer, Father. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Well, today we continue our series of messages on facing your fears, and today is facing your fear of failure. Our society constantly feeds us a lot of lies, as we all know. One of those lies goes something like this. If I'm not perfect... I'm a failure. If I'm not number one, I'm a loser. And being branded a failure is today's, in today's society is the unforgivable sin. We hate failure. We worship success. That's why there are so many workaholics and perfectionists in our world. Now, not in our congregation today, of course. That's not the case. But there's a lot of those type of people, workaholics and perfectionists, in our world. In fact, how many of you know a workaholic or a perfectionist? Okay, raise your hand. Okay, quite a few. How many of you live with one? No, don't raise your hand. I, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't really, I don't really want to know that. But I do want to tell you the story of a good friend of mine by the name of Gary Dahlman. Uh, Gary and I started seminary the same year, uh, the fall of 1974. And I came from the West Coast. Sherry and I moved out there with our 13-month-old daughter, and uh, we came from San Diego. He came from Michigan, and he had just uh, graduated from Michigan State University, that uh, bastion of intellectual prowess. I, I said that for the sake of Steve Reed in the first service. Um, uh, Miss, M- Michigan State University is a good university, though, and it, is, it does have high academic, a- academic standards. Uh, Gary went all through El High, uh, never received anything below an A. Went all through Michigan State University in microbiology was his, his, um, uh, his major and never received anything below an A. So he comes to North Park Theological Seminary with the rest of us, uh, ordinary people. And uh, uh, from day one, from the first class, the first theology class of the day, uh, we knew, all of us in our class, there was a class of about 40 people, we knew who the smartest guy was. You know how you know when you kind of go into, you know, who's the smartest person in the room? We knew who the smartest person in the room was. And we also knew that many of us were there to get our education, 
get seminary so we could be ordained so that we could go and serve Christ in the local church. That was our goal. That was our purpose. Gary's goal was something different. His goal was to crush the rest of us intellectually, and he succeeded at that. So all through seminary, he never received anything less than an A. Now, I don't know if you know this, but in seminary, they don't just give out A's. You've got to really earn it. And uh, Gary had a perfect record all through seminary until the last semester. The last semester, a uh, a class on ethics. Uh, it was kind of an elective, but many of us were taking it because it was supposed to be easy. And uh, we took this class on ethics, and in that class, somehow, some way, I don't know how it happened, Gary Dahlman got a B plus. He received his grade on a Friday. By Saturday, he was checked into uh, Swedish Covenant Hospital in the psychiatric ward. He had a literal emotional breakdown. Now, thank God he recovered from that, but uh, it's hard to recover from a lifetime of perfectionism. It's hard to recover from a lifetime of thinking, knowing, believing that you are defined by being the absolute best in everything you do. So how many of you are B-plusers? How many of you are okay with getting a B plus. At our men's retreat, our speaker told us something that kind of made us real a little bit. He said every day he tells his kids that he loves them and he tells his kids to shoot for C's. Remember that, guys, at the retreat? Shoot for C's. You know, some of the young fathers went up there and said, now, what do you mean by that? We want our, you know. But the idea is, come on, relax. It's school, you know. It's have a good time, relax. We want you to do well, sure, but this perfectionism will kill you. And this morning, I want to share with you from God's Word how we can be free. So, I am so glad that the Bible is the book that presents all of these people of faith, men and women of great faith, but presents them in a way that you see their warts and all. You see their imperfections. You see their flaws. You see their great sins. Let's give some examples. Most of you know uh, the great king of Israel, King David. Uh, King David was, the Bible says, a man after God's own heart. I mean, he was a man, his heart was just like that for God. And he was a giant killer, and he was a prince of a nation. But this man also committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then he sent Bathsheba's husband out in the front lines of a battle so that he would be killed, and his plan worked perfectly. This was a man after God's own heart. Heart. How did he get into the hall of fame? Excuse me, the hall of fame. And how about Moses? Last week we talked about Moses, the song that uh, Pastor Ryan introduced us to today. That you know, I am the great I am. That was the name of God. And when Moses was confronted with uh, with God in the burning bush, uh, uh, he said, "Well, what's your name?" He said to the bush, and God said, "My name is I am Jehovah. I am. I am that I am, which means I am with you." But Moses didn't really believe that because Moses said, you know what, God, I was this guy that in a fit of rage killed one of Pharaoh's servants. I'm this guy that doesn't have the ability or the strength to go and deliver the children of Israel from Egypt to a promised land. I can't do that. And he kind of whined and said, I can't do it. And this was a man who was supposed to be the leader of a nation, a failure. Or how about um, probably the biggest failure of all, in the Bible. Anybody, Sherry, that wasn't in first service, anybody want to take a guess of who that would be? Go ahead, say it out loud. Peter, yes, Peter. 
Probably the best example of failure in the Bible is our friend Peter. He was strong and courageous. He protected Jesus from the high priest. You know the story. Who said to Jesus, I will never betray you, Lord. Even if I have to die for you, I will never disown you. I'm your guy. I'm, I've got your back. I'm your paraclete. You know, I'll protect you. I'm your soldier. He was so full of himself, so full of pride, and ready to follow Jesus anywhere. Well, you know the story. Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. The disciples kind of flaked out, but they joined him up there at the end. And a contingency of guards from the Jewish palace, um, so it was some of the leaders of the Jewish sect that were angry at Jesus, and they had kind of deputized some people. They weren't Roman guards, but deputized some Jewish people to be guards. They went out to arrest Jesus. And so they come up to him, and you know the story? Peter, in a fit of anger and protection, I'm going to protect Jesus, he drew his sword, started flailing, and literally cut off the right ear of the high priest's servant by the name of Malchus. That was exciting. Jesus said, put your sword away. That's not how we're going to do this. That's not how the kingdom of God is going to come. So Peter, you know, frustrated, put his sword away. Then Jesus did something very cool, picked up the ear, put it back on the guy, right? At that time, if you're one of those Jewish guards, wouldn't you have said, I want to play for his team? You know, that's the guy I want to be with, you know. But anyway, they didn't. They arrested Jesus and, and took him off. And, and then uh, this is what happened. And if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn to John chapter 18. It's also on the screen. It's in your sermon notes. And as we read this text, I just want to remind you of something I try to tell you every Sunday, and it's this. Read your Bibles. It's an amazing book. Uh, you will find faith there. You will find stories that will inspire you, stories that will transform you. It is an amazing book. It is the living, breathing Word of God. Read your Bibles, okay? So today, our text is found in John chapter 18. Whether you have your Bibles or the bulletin notes or uh, your instruments that have a uh, Bible, uh, please read along. This is from the NIV. This is the Word of God for the people of God today. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. They're trying to find kind of a sacrificial lamb. And because Jesus was such an irritant to them, they said, let's get this guy, let's take care of him. Uh, the Romans kind of leave us alone when we kind of politic ourselves, so let's get this Jesus and kill him. Simon Peter and another disciple, and when it says the other disciple, this is John speaking of himself in the third person, okay? So the writer of the gospel. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Simon Peter and the other disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple had, was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. You say, wow, what happened, right? It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they made from a heat to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them warming himself. By the way, let me just pause here. That's a whole nother sermon. We'll do that sometime. When you decide that you're going to warm yourself in the enemy's fire, you're going to always be in trouble. And that's what happened to Peter, okay? So let's move on. 
So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, didn't I see you with him in the garden? And again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Jesus had predicted to Peter when Peter was feeling all arrogant and haughty and said, I'll never leave your side. I'm always going to be with you. Jesus predicted that he was going to deny Christ three times before the rooster crowed. And sure enough, it happened. Think about what a colossal failure Peter was. And maybe think about your own life. Have you ever been a failure? Well, of course we have. God I'll walk with you through the fires of hell. You're in a, uh, in a situation that's tough. God, if you just get me out of this situation, I'll, I'll live with, serve you all the rest of my life. I remember when I was a teenager, I was surfing in San Diego, and I just crashed big time. And in those days, we had the longboards, the big old honking things. And, and I was hit uh, on my back, not on my head, but on my back with, by the board, and it just knocked me down. And I was disoriented, and I didn't know where I was, and I was flailing around. And I remember in that moment, I said, God, if you rescue me, I'll serve you for the rest of my life. Now, I made that promise like a hundred times in the next few years because I'd always kind of forget it, you know, when things started going well. But haven't you ever been like that where you've just really failed God and say, okay, now I'm really serious. Now I'm really going to serve you. Now I'm really going to be a good Christian for you. But we fall. And if you're like me, we fall spectacularly like Peter. Now, if you've ever slipped up or skinned your spiritual knee, you're just like Peter, and you're just like me. God doesn't whitewash the failings of his people. He never winks at sin and says, oh, it's okay, it's no big deal. It's always a big deal when we break the heart of God because he, wants, he doesn't want us to deny our failure. He doesn't want us to hide from our failure. He wants us to face it squarely. There's power in failure if it's properly understood. But if we don't face our fear of failure, we won't run the risk of falling into a couple of traps. I've already alluded to those. One of the traps we can fall into is the what-if trap. What if I fail? We're immobilized by fear. We're cautious. We're far too concerned with the risks. I remember uh, my freshman year of high school, um, back where I, where I lived, there was no such thing as Little League football, you know, what they call Pop Warner football now. So I never had a chance to play when I was a kid except in the sandlot, playing in the sandlot. And so I didn't really know if I was any good. I mean, I knew I was better than some of the neighborhood kids, but I didn't know if I was any good. And I almost didn't go out for football for fear that if I did, maybe I would fail and that would be embarrassing because I love football. And I remember my dad said, Dwayne, you're only a failure if you don't try. Man, if you, if you try and you, and you don't make it, so what? Then we'll, you play the violin. You know, thank God that didn't happen. You know, you know I wouldn't have been any good at that. But, you know, he's, you got to go for it. So the what-if trap. I just finished a book, uh, the most recent book by Jeff Shara, 
uh, on the Civil War, and it's about the siege at Vicksburg, Vicksburg, Mississippi, in uh, the spring of 1863. And in that, uh, the Confederates were kind of pinned down in Vicksburg, but they knew. Robert E. Lee told them, don't you give up that city. It was a port city. It's where they were getting all supplies to the rest of the South. It was right on the Mississippi. And they knew they needed to hold Vicksburg, Mississippi. And he said, you, got, you hold that to death. You do whatever you can. But they didn't have enough troops. Uh, Grant's troops were overwhelming. And they didn't know. So they were waiting for help. They were all entrenched. They were dug in. They were entrenched. But they were being picked off by the Union soldiers. And it was, we knew it was just a matter of, they knew it was a matter of time that they would be totally destroyed if they didn't get help. So Pemberton was on his way, General Pemberton, but there was another general, General McClernand, who was supposed to be on his way as well. But McClernand, a year ago, had failed at another fight. And so when he got his orders to come and support the South from the South, uh, he said, uh, it's too dangerous, I'm not going to go. And the reason they lost Vicksburg, and they lost it big time, they lost Thousands, almost, they lost almost as many soldiers at Vicksburg as they did at Gettysburg. The reason they lost is because one man decided it was too much of a risk to get involved. Is that you? I mean, some of you are in that what-if trap. Well, what if I fail? What if I don't do well? Well, there's another trap that we can fall into, and that's the performance trap. This is the person who is so afraid of failure that they literally spend themselves to ensure failure doesn't happen. Maybe some of you are like that. You certainly know someone who's like that. They become workaholics. They're consumed with doing everything perfect. They set standards that are unrealistic. Exhaustion results and discontentment, discontentment and self-destruction. The problem with the uh, performance trap is that the society applauds us. I've known many pastors who have fallen into this and literally have had, had to leave the ministry because of the tremendous stress. They fell into the performance trap that, because you know what? You can ask Pastor Brandon or myself anytime. When we go home from work every day, it's not over. You know, we didn't have a checklist, say, okay, well, I got everything done today. There's always more, there's always more people, there's always more situations. And so you have to leave it with the Lord because you know you're going to fail, you know you're not going to be available, you know you can't do everything. And so we have this discontentment when we find ourselves as perfectionists. So how do we face the fear of failure? Well, I want to share four things with you from Scripture, four kind of antidotes to the fear of failure, four keys from the Word of God. The first key is this. We need to accept the fact that everyone fails. Now, how many of you have ever made a mistake in your life? Okay? Oh, good. About a third of you. Great. Great. <laughs> yeah. Well, the other two-thirds, you just lied, so uh, you failed as well. Just, just, to, you know, just saying. Listen to what the Bible says about all of us. Romans 3.10. As the Scriptures say, there is no one who always does right, not even one. Now, the only one that we know, he goes on and says in Romans, who did it right only was Jesus because he was God in a body, right? But at, as the scriptures say, there is no one who always does right, not even one. We had a, a visitor in the first hour, I forget his name, his name was Arnold. 
And Arnold was here for the second time. And I said, well, Arnold, how did you find Hope Covenant Church? He said, I saw the sign out front. He said, I read it, no perfect people allowed. I said, well, there's a church that'll let me in. And so he came into church and he realized, like all of us, that we will never make perfection until, praise God, one day we get to be with the Lord, right? But right now on this planet, on this little rock that we call earth, we are imperfect. All scripture, all, as the scripture says, there is no one uh, there was no one who always does right, not even one. Romans 3.23, all have sinned, not most, not some, not a good deal of, all have sinned and fallen short of God's standard or God's glory. And then in James 3.2, we all stumble in many, many ways. So is that you? Do those verses describe you? It certainly describes me. Failure is part of the human condition. If you're like me, the closest I ever get to perfection is when I update my resume. And uh, you're probably the same way. In fact, we've been getting, we've been getting, as you know, we're searching for a new youth pastor and we've been getting, uh, resumes are coming in all the time because we've gone to several sites and so we're getting all these resumes. And what's interesting is you go through them, every resume looks absolutely like it's the perfect candidate, you know. Well, this job was made for me, and I know that God wants me to have this job. And basically, they're implying that if we don't call them, that we're disobeying God, you know. And all of these people are perfect. All of them have the perfect experience, the perfect education, and how on earth are we going to ever pick from all of those? That's what a resume does. Why can't we accept the fact that we're imperfect? Nobody bats a thousand. Nobody gets a hole in one every time. Nobody hits the perfect note uh, by singing or playing every time, except maybe Joy Boydson, I don't know. I mean, repeat after me. I have failed. That was so weak. You even failed at that, okay? Come on, let's try it again. I have failed. I am failing. I will fail. And that's because we're human. We're all like the roads in Arizona. We're constantly under construction. So listen to these words. When you let go of your image of being perfect, sorry, Nora, uh, when you let go of your image of being perfect, the fear of failure will let go of its grip on you. We must accept the fact that everyone fails. Second key to dealing with the fear of failure is this. We need to understand that failure isn't fatal. Okay? Failure is not fatal. In other words, it's not the end of the world. Answer these questions for me. Was Babe Ruth a failure? No. Well, be careful because every seven out of ten times he went to the plate, he, 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 he made an out. Over his career, 1,330 times he struck out. It's, at the time, it was a record. Now, he did hit 714 home runs, but almost twice as often that he hit home runs did he strike out. What would have happened if Babe Ruth had have said after the first time he struck out, well, I'm not very good at this, I'm going to quit, I'm not going to do it anymore. Or how about the novelist John Creasy? Is he a failure? Of course not. He published one, hundreds of books, very good author. But did you know that he received 753 rejection slips before his first book was published? How about Greg Norman, wonderful golfer? Was he a failure? He choked big time at the 1996 Masters. It was called, quote, the greatest collapse in major tournament history. Listen to what Norman said after that tournament. He said, by the way, he's a Christ follower. He said, I have a good life. It's not the end of the world, losing a major championship. I am disappointed, and I'm not, but I'm not going to be like Dennis Rodman and headbutt the official, okay, if you remember that. 
I love the game of golf. It's given me a lot and will give me a lot more. That does not sound like a failure to me. And how about, let's go, let's go back to our friend Peter. Was he a failure? I mean, he denied Christ three times at crunch time. And when Jesus needed him the most, he failed him. If we judge Peter after this incident, we would have to label him as a failure. But that's not the end of the story. In fact, if you don't remember anything else in this message today, today remember that one phrase. It's not the end of the story. Your failure, it's not the end of the story. In fact, your life, you think you're writing your life and in a lot of ways you are, but God says, I promise you that I'm going to write the end of your story. I'm going to be with you in writing the end of your story. Always remember, that concept really matters. It's not the end of the story. So let's look at what happened with Peter. He failed Jesus three times. And so, okay, after that failure, he was crucified. We don't know what happened to Peter, except he went off and he cried a bit and was feeling badly. Doesn't show up again until the resurrection. Everybody shows up at the resurrection. Now, that's pretty cool. So uh, Jesus uh, is resurrected. He, uh, he invites Peter by name to come and join him in the upper room, which he does. And, uh, and they have some kind of a connection. We don't know exactly what was said there, but at least Jesus spoke to him. So he wasn't that mad at him, right? So, but Peter's still feeling kind of squirmy. So, then a while after that, before his ascension, there was 40 days between the uh, uh, re resurrection and the ascension. Sometime in there, uh, the disciples were out in a boat fishing. And Peter was among them. He was the chief, chief fisherman. And as they were fishing, they weren't catching anything. Jesus hollered. He's on the shore, right? And he's looking good because he's Jesus and he has his brand new body. He doesn't have all these stripes and uh, you know, uh, uh, marks all over his body from the crucifixion. He shows them hands like that, but he's really good. He's the Shekinah glory. He's beautiful. He's glorified. He's just this shining, radiant person. And, and Jesus said, hey, throw your nuts, nets on the other side of the boat. And so they did, and they got hundreds of fish. And after that, Jesus said, why don't you guys come on shore, and let's talk. And so they come on shore, and Jesus, this is cool, the resurrected Christ I mean, he's got this glorified body, right? He's like perfect. And, the and what does he do? He cooks some breakfast. It's pretty awesome. So he's cooking up some, some bass, you know, and maybe some potatoes. And, and, and he's feeding the disciples. And then when he's feeding them, he says, hey, Peter, come here, I want to talk to you. That's the, that's the moment that Peter was not looking forward to. Because they haven't had this real heart-to-heart -heart yet, we don't think. We, at least doesn't say in the text. They haven't had this heart-to-heart -heart yet. So Peter said, oh, here it comes. You know, I'm going to be hammered for denying him. And I deserve it. You know, I'm, I'm ready. Ready to take it. So Jesus said, I, I want to talk to you. And then Jesus asked him a question that he completely didn't expect. And here was the question. He didn't say, Peter, why did you sin? Why did you deny me? That crushed me. Or he didn't say, uh, Peter, I thought I could count on you, but... Look how you failed me. Didn't see that. Here's what he asked Peter. He said, Peter, do you love me? That is so beautiful. Because so often we think that the problem is our sin. The problem is usually not our sin. The problem is our love. What are we loving? Are we loving something more than Jesus? That's usually when we get in trouble, right? So he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter, I'm sure he was embarrassed and didn't know what to say. So he said what any of us would say, yes. Thinking in spite of my actions, 
Yes, Jesus, I love you. And then Jesus said something extraordinary. He said, then feed my sheep. He said, what does that mean? Well, what, what Jesus was basically saying is, Peter, I'm passing on to you the mantle of taking care of the church of Jesus Christ when I ascend to heaven. I'm leaving this to you. The other guys, you guys have a big job to do. Here's your job. Go and win the entire world for Jesus. <laughs> Feed my sheep. Take care of my lambs. In other words, take care of the disciples. Take care of the other Christ followers. Oversee the whole thing. And Peter did that very well. And I want you to do that. So he said, feed my sheep. So Peter said, okay, okay. And then Jesus said, I've got another question for you. And Peter said, okay, what's the other question? Uh, he said, um, Peter, do you love me? And I'm sure at this point he's saying, oh man, he didn't believe me the first time. Did I say it wrong? Did I say it funny? Lord, you know that I love you. You know? I love you. And Jesus again said, take care of my lambs. Third time, Peter, do you love me? With all my heart, Lord, with all my heart, I love you. Take care of my sheep. So this colossal failure, Peter, this man who could have done so many things right, did so many things wrong, this is the guy who Jesus gave responsibility over his most precious possession, the Christ followers, the believers, the body of Christ. Throughout Scripture, we find that God taps on the shoulder failure after failure after failure and tells them, I have a job for you. I know it sounds out of, above your pay grade. I know it sounds like you can't do it, but I have a job for you, and this job is coming directly from the Father in heaven to you, and I want to give you that responsibility, and I know you failed before, but listen. My love will sustain you. My forgiveness will overwhelm you. My mercy will simply lie on you. You can do it. Fear of failure. We have to completely remove that. So Peter goes on, and he says, okay, I've got this mantra. I don't know what to do with that. And then we find uh, that, that there's this amazing uh, picture of what happened just a short while after that. Again, if you have your Bibles, if you turn to Acts chapter 2, we want to look at what happened. So uh, we don't know how many days, uh, but uh, after Jesus ascended to heaven, but uh, it was shortly, there was this feast of Pentecost in Jerusalem that meant all the Jews from all over much, much a good part of Asia Minor would come to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. And so there's people there from everywhere, and there were thousands and thousands of people. And Peter, blessed and anointed by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit came on him at Pentecost, started preaching to the crowd. And this is amazing. And he's preaching, he's telling them about Jesus, and let's pick it up in verse 36 of Acts chapter 2. Therefore, he's preaching, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, and Peter might have said, and whom I denied, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted this message were baptized, and listen to this, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 
So here's this colossal failure, Peter, who runs and hides at the crucifixion. God gives him a second chance and says, Peter, I've got a job for you that you won't believe. I want you to take care of my most precious possession, the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, the disciples and all these other beliefs. I want you to take care of them. And Peter said, okay, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'll try my best. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And that day when he preached the gospel, 3,000 people came to Christ. Is that how you define a failure? Now, would he have gotten to that point if he hadn't have failed? I don't think so. I think the failure is what propelled him to be completely and totally dependent on God. See, failure is not failing to reach a goal. Failure is not setting a goal. Failure is not falling down. Failure is refusing to get up and to try again. Failure is not fatal. There's a third key to facing our fear, and it's this. We need to see the benefits of failure. Now, that's kind of weird when you hear the benefits of failure. Uh, Let me share a couple of things with you. The first is this. Failure is educational. We can learn from our failures. Failures are an opportunity to start over wiser and better and more educated and more faith-filled. Peter's big problem was his pride and his arrogance. That's what used to be my downfall, pride and arrogance. Do you think he learned a lesson about those things after his denial? You bet he did. Listen to his testimony in his book, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. This is what Peter said to us, but he also said it to himself. Listen to what he said. All of you, yes, that includes me, he would say, clothe yourselves with what? Humility towards one another, not withdrawing a sword and cutting off an ear. Fill yourself with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Isn't that beautiful? Peter wrote that. He learned his lesson. It's not about being proud and arrogant. It's about giving my life and all of my resources to the one who is my Lord and King. No one, including Peter, failed as spectacularly as I did. And you know the story. Um, In 1997, I stood before my congregation at Roseville Covenant Church on on a September Sunday, and I apologized for being an addictive gambler and for being deceptive, and for being a liar. And that was the hardest thing I've ever done. In fact, that was the lowest point of my life, by far. And here, all my life, I had been filled with pride and arrogance, and and there'd been so much success in the different things I had done over my life, and everything crashed and burned in that moment. Now, the next three years, I'm not going to tell you were easy, but they were the best years of my life. Sherry and I worked and struggled for me to get healed, for our marriage to be healed, for me to overcome my addiction to gambling. And all of these things took place. And three years later, we were able to stand before the congregation at Roseville again and apologize again. And then they allowed us to share, to serve them communion. Now that was the grace of God. Even though I had this amazing failure in my life, God said, I'm going to give you a second chance, just like Peter. Now my second chance didn't wasn't a spectacular standing and preaching and having 3,000 conversions. Mine was sitting in our apartment in Plymouth, Minnesota, waiting for the phone to ring, thinking that some church may take a risk on a broken, wounded pastor. And finally, somebody did desperately. Hope Covenant Church called all 30 of them and said, we need anybody, just give me somebody. And so they got me. But here, here's, the, here's the nose of God's grace. 
through that broken-hearted man, God has used me in ways I never thought would be possible to bring healing and hope to people for these last 14 years. Out of a terrible, and I, and I don't recommend that any of you fail like that, but if you do, God says there's hope because only God can pick you up, only God can bring you healing, only God can give you grace. The testimony of God's word is that we can be healed from this failure that we call life. There's a last thing that we need to experience failure in a way that will be helpful, and it's this. We need to remember that God stands ready to forgive. We need to remember that God stands ready to forgive. Psalm 103, 13 and 14, we read these words. The Lord has mercy on those who respect him. As a father, he has mercy on his children. He knows how we were made. He remembers that we are dust. I wonder if you remember that you are dust, that you were made from the soil, literally. The Bible tells us that God took dust from the ground and shaped it and breathed life into it. Sometimes we forget that we are human beings. In fact, let's just do this. Uh, turn to somebody and say, you're a pile of dust. See, yeah, wasn't that affirming? Yeah. Listen, folks, God wants us to strive for godliness, but he recognizes our imperfection, our dustiness. God is never shocked by my failures. And here's the best news of all that God loves me in spite of my mistakes. God loves you in spite of your failures, your sins, and your mistakes in all of my dustiness. God never stops loving me when I mess up. God never stops loving me, whether it's the good days or the bad days. You see, God loves me unconditionally. God's love toward us is not performance-based. God's love toward us is just like the father of the prodigal son when the prodigal son came back from this horrendous failure of his life, and the father embraced him and kissed him and wouldn't let him go. Some of you grew up in homes that were performance-based. You were never good enough. Your grades were never good enough. The expectations were such that it felt like a burden to you. Can I please tell you some good news this morning? God is not like a perfectionistic parent. God loves us and keeps, us, keeps on loving us even when we fail. And when we fail, God does two things if we ask. He forgives us completely. And he gives us the power to start over. Boy, I want that with all my heart. Some of you might say, well, but pastor, you don't know how bad my life is. You don't know how bad my sin is. You don't know how often I've failed. You don't know how often I've, I've looked at pornography when I didn't want to. You don't know how often I've, I've gossiped and lied when I didn't want to. And how many times I've failed over and over and over and over again. Let me say this and say it clearly. There is nothing that you can do that will make God love you any less. His, the blood that he shed on the cross covers all of your sins. You're his child. You're not perfect. You're dusty. I understand that. But God loves you and he graces you every day and he says, listen, you have an opportunity now. You can start over. Soren Kierkegaard, great theologian, said it this way. Despairing over one's sins is perhaps the greatest sin. 
In other words, not believing that the blood of Jesus can wash away your sins and give you a fresh start is perhaps the greatest sin of all. Dallas Willard's paraphrase of Romans 8.28 is this. Nothing irredeemable can happen to you. Do you believe that? Isn't that beautiful? Nothing irredeemable can happen to you. Yeah, but I'm not, I don't always do the right thing. I sin. Yeah, I understand that. You're still dusty. I get that. Okay. I believe God wants to say something to every person in this room as we close. These are action steps, okay? You pick out the one that is for you. Maybe it's all three of them. For those of you who have been uh, playing it safe, those of you who, like McClurndon, just stayed on the sidelines and stayed out of the war, stayed out of the battle, lest you would fail. For those of you who have allowed fear to paralyze your potential, God has three words for you. Go for it. Go for it. Venture out. Leave your comfort zone. Dust off some of those dreams you stored in the attic and take a shot at something God wants you or is needling you to do. Don't be afraid of failure. Failure is refusing to try. Now, for those of you who are caught in the performance trap, thinking you've got to work harder to do things better in order to be accepted by God and by other people, God says two words to you. Get real, right? Let go of the impossible. You're not God. You never will be. And for those of you who have experienced failure lately, who find yourself flat on your face due to moral, relational, or occupational failure, God has two words for you. And it's, get up. You don't have to stay down. Father comes to you. The Father says he kneels by the brokenhearted. He comes to you. He lifts you up. Peter said it this way. Peter said he lifts up the humble. Let me tell you what those words mean that Peter spoke. When he says he lifts up the humble, he literally picks you up. And then it's like Jesus takes your face in his hands. And he says, listen, I love you. I forgive you. I've redeemed you. I know you failed. I know you've dropped the ball many times, but listen, now's a new day. I love you. You're graced, you're forgiven, you're loved. Now go and serve the Lord with all your heart. That's the kind of God that we serve. God wants each and every one of us to say, you know what, this failure thing, it's not working for me. I need to give my life, my heart, my desire, and my sins to the Lord Jesus because he has redeemed us and there is nothing in us that is irredeemable. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we know the truth of this, but we forget so often, and we so get in this trap that I've just got to be good enough for God to like me. I've just got to be good enough for the people around me to know me and understand me and feel good about me, but Lord, everything we have is just standing before you, we in all of our dustiness, and Lord saying, Lord Jesus, you are my only hope. Please forgive me. Please redeem me. There is nothing irredeemable in my life. Lord, give me that second chance. Lord, may we experience that as a congregation today. For we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus, our Lord. And all of God's people together said, amen, amen.